We are attempting to begin the gospel of, of, of Matthew, and my plan was, and maybe I should just start teaching and stop talking about what my plan is, but I, 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 to do some introductory material and get through chapter one, which on the surface is a, maybe a quick chapter, as, as, you, as you think. However, um, recognizing, as I did early this morning, that chapter one also involves the entire doctrine of the incarnation and Christ as true God and true man and the myriad number of heresies that have sprung up because of that. Maybe I really should shut up and just start teaching because we have a lot to go through. And I, not, I'm not sure we're going to get through everything, but we will see. But the Gospel of Matthew, uh, I believe that it was the first of the Gospels to be written. You uh, read the footnotes in almost any published Bible and they will disagree with what I just said. Because beginning in the 19th century, uh, there was an opinion begun in Germany that the gospel writers must have all used uh, a previous text that they based their writings on. And uh, it's called various things, um, but most often you'll see it called Q which stands for quella, or the source. It's an imaginary document, which, by the way, no copy of Q has ever been found. It's just a made-up thing. Uh, uh, also, you will sometimes see U-M, or er mark. That is, the old mark will be talked about as if it's a source. No copy of that has ever been found either. They don't exist. They are imaginings from the 19th century when all kinds of things to do with biblical scholarship went down a weird dead end. And almost 200 years of, of, of scholarship, of, 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 of genius, was wasted on some of these theories that went nowhere and mean nothing. Um, it's, it's, it's really a shame. Um, but uh, just getting off of that on, on what isn't to what is, the fact is there are uh, copies of the Gospels and other New Testament manuscripts from very, very early. Um, in fact, a couple of them date from the very first century. Um, I, I'll, I'll talk about one of those in a moment. There is a copy of a fragment of the Gospel of John that seems to have been copied within 25 years of John's writing of the Gospel of John. So very, very early um, uh, 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 copies of fragments of, of papyrus and other manuscripts. It was because of the Gospels, um, really, that the concept of a book, as we understand the idea of a book, really took off and got underway. Prior to the writing of the Gospels and the copying of the Gospels, there were such things as, as bound books. They were very rare and hardly ever used. Usually it was uh, kind of a reference document and they were, it was a brand new thing. But when the Gospels came around, the Gospels are different from the Old Testament books because you have, instead of three or four scrolls with an, an advancing story like 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 You've got four copies of the same story. 
And there is a need to sometimes go back and forth in the same document easily to compare things. And so the idea of what was called a codex was really uh, 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 captured and, and run with, where you, you take basically what's in a scroll, uh, or the pages of a scroll, instead of, and scroll pages were always the same size, um, the same as in a book today. But they're in a scroll, they're sewn together or glued together to make a big, long thing. That isn't a gigantic cowhide that's been cut and rolled up. That's pages that have been sewn together. And you can even see the stitching on many of them or glued together. What they did with a, with a, with a scroll or with a codex is rather than glue them together, they glued them only on one end. And now you have what looks like a book. You know, written on both sides and, and now you can go back and forth. And it was really uh, intended for the Gospels. That's the, that's the whole idea of what this would be. And all of a sudden, long about the uh, early or mid-2nd century A.D., copies of these codexes or codices are, are all over the place. And they're, and they're in use everywhere. And even translations of the Bible began to crop up in codex form. Um, so uh, I'm just telling you to let you understand that this is really the turn of manuscript, biblical manuscript um, uh, study as well. Well, the Gospel of Matthew, as I said, I believe is the first one written. Um, I think that Matthew was written, I have this on your sheet, um, at, uh, sometime after 40 AD, maybe in the early 50s, that's a pretty good guess. The earliest dated manuscript of a copy of the Gospel of Matthew has been proposed at 66 AD. However, that date has been disputed and some people think it's maybe early second century, so 120 or so, rather than 66. The reason that they came up with 66 is the page, the ink, and the style of writing are identical to a dated codex in Egypt that we know came from 66 that wasn't a biblical manuscript. They think maybe the same scribe did them both. And in fact, at the same time, because the ink is identical, so it makes sense that it, maybe it would be. But that's been disputed by people, but for various reasons. And I'm not here to, to, to begin a class on biblical manuscript studies, although it's a fascinating study. It, it really, really is. Um, and I've had many courses in biblical manuscript studies, and, and I'm responsible for uh, a, a, a biblical minuscule manuscript, 1237, um, in the Gospel of John that's being used um, as well. But... To show you Matthew here, if you look at the pie graph I have uh, created here, this is of the entire content of the four Gospels. Matthew, which is the blue, is the biggest chunk. It's almost a third of the entire body of, of, the, of the four Gospels. Mark is very small, um, but together Matthew and Mark make up about half, and Luke and John make up about half. Um, Luke Almost the same size as Matthew, a little bit shorter, and John a little bit longer than Mark, but that's how, the, that's how it plays out. Are you all familiar with the, with the term synoptic? Have you heard that term? Some of you have not, some of you have. Synoptic, if you, if you hear the word C, you know, the opta, optic in, in, in synoptic, 
Synoptic means that they see together. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke are usually called the synoptic gospels because they see the life of Christ together. You look up a story in Matthew, it's probably in Mark and Luke. And so they they go together. John is not. John really fills in the gaps, especially in the early ministry of Jesus, um, where the, the, the other gospels have practically nothing of the first year of Jesus' ministry. We kind of go from the baptism of Jesus suddenly into like kind of the Sermon on the Mount almost in Matthew. There's a whole year in between there where Jesus changed water into wine and heals the nobleman's servant and things like that. That's just not in the other Gospels. Um, so uh, John is just different. Also, uh, just notable that Matthew and Luke are the only two Gospels that give us an account of the Savior's birth. It's not in Mark. It's not in John. Okay. All right. Uh, So uh, the author is Matthew. He's the apostle known as Levi. We know a little bit about Matthew, mostly because the, the, the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all tell the story of how Jesus went and called him. Remember what his job was? He's a tax collector. Yeah, so he's also, that's really synonymous with sinner. So he's this sinful man who was probably ripping people off by charging way too much for their taxes. And here at the beginning of March, we're all thinking about taxes. Okay, so uh, uh, Matthew, we, 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 we know very little about him. Um, what we do know is not written really about his life, but more about Christ's graciousness. The, the two incidents we have around Matthew are his call and then the meal he throws at his house afterwards. Um, and then the encounter with Christ and the, and the Pharisees who are there and the other tax collectors. So that's really what we know. And it's really all about the, 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 the grace of Jesus in calling a sinner. The language of the Gospel of Matthew is Greek. There were some, I'm going to call them really early rumors that Matthew had written maybe in Aramaic or even possibly in Hebrew originally and then rewrote it in Greek. Um, That's from the least reliable of the apostolic fathers. Okay? So if you take some things with a grain of salt, you just exceeded your sodium limit for the day, or maybe for the week. Um, So just just because Papias says something does not mean that we need to take it seriously. Um, He is a church father who was so little regarded that at a time when they were saving everything from everybody, we only have little fragments from Papias because nobody really cared. And he wrote like five books. And we have, I think, three pages of, of stuff from Papias. So uh, take that with, yeah, okay. Uh, but written, uh, the, 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 certainly the copy that we have, the inspired copy, is in Greek, and I'll just leave it at that. This is the Magdalene Papyrus, which some have dated to the, the year 66, that would be mid-first century, but some people think might be early second century. And uh, these, it's not just three, these three fragments, but I think there's one more. And it is a codex because it's written on both sides. So it's not a, it's not a papyrus where it's a page and a page and a page, but it's front and back. And uh, it's extremely legible Greek. Um, and it's uh, the content that we have is Matthew 26, 23, and then 
2631 on the back, which is, it's, it's the part of the Last Supper where Jesus says, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me and so forth. And then I think on the other side would be, uh, is it saying to Peter, Satan has asked me to sift you? I think it's about that, uh, right around that part of the, of the same incident. So these are, these are sheets that are, you know, not that big. And these are pieces, because papyrus, um, which is a plant, when it gets old, it gets kind of brittle. And you know how, uh, you ever had, a, ever had a leaf on a plant in your house go, go brown and you pick it and it's no longer pliable, but it's kind of stiff and so forth? If you, if you were to layer a couple of those one on another, that's papyrus. Okay, so it, it's brittle. It does snap very easily, so be careful with it. Um, and it's easily damaged, but that's, and you could write on it. Um, there's a good side and an okay side with papyrus. It's not like vellum, which is lamp calf skin, which is there's a good side and there's a great side. With, uh, with papyrus, there's a good side and there's, because in one side you're writing with the grain, and on the other side you're writing against the grain. So it's not, well, they, they, to make papyrus, they would take, <clears throat> how can I, uh, I know, imagine um, leaves from an ear of corn, okay? Now, to make papyrus, uh, uh, you would, you would uh, uh, papyrus comes with, with its own glue. It's a little bit like milkweed, but I'm, I want you to imagine much larger leaves. So that's why I'm saying you saying when you when you shuck corn, you know that size, and you you set three of them this way, and then three of them this way, and leave them to dry. And now the ones that are this way are it's easy to write on, but the ones that are this way, it's a little bit hard because you have ridges and stuff. It's harder to write. The letters might not be as great. Um, but anyway, that's that's how you made and uh, and used papyrus. Some things about Matthew. I've got a couple things on your sheet, some details. With, along with the Gospel of John, it's the most quoted gospel of ancient times. The Gospel of Mark is by far the least quoted gospel of the most ancient Christians, which is one reason I, I was there when he thought of it um, in class, at least when he first expected it or expressed it. But when Professor Daniel Deutschlander decided to write a commentary on a, on, on a gospel, he chose Mark for that reason, because it's the one that's handled the least by the ancients, and it's so full of doctrine that he that he loved it, and it was a, it was a special treasure. Okay, but I remember in class I had him in class in 1991, and uh, and 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 a, and, a, and, a, and really it was a doctrine for dummies we called it. It was for guys like me, and it was you know, it was religion zero zero one. There was no more primitive class at Northwestern College, but he taught it. And then everybody was jealous that we got to take it. They wanted to audit um, and so forth. I remember the day when he said that, though. You know, it was, He said, we really need a good commentary on Mark. And he said, maybe, maybe when I'm retired, I'll have time for that. And it turned out he did. Um, I'll read what's on the screen and then supplement with what I have on the sheet. So uh, Matthew focuses on the sending of the Messiah by God in fulfillment of his promises. Matthew assumes that the reader has read the Old Testament. Mark seems to assume that the reader has never even heard of the Old Testament. Mark only has one Old Testament quotation outside of quotation marks. If somebody is quoting 
Old Testament, then Mark puts it in. But Mark himself only has one quotation at the very beginning. There's nothing else in Mark. Um, so Matthew assumes that you've read the Old Testament. And then Ma Matthew focuses on Christ's ministry to men in his teaching, in his parables. Did you know that there are no parables at all in the Gospel of John? You may just never have noticed that. Um, and in his miracles, Christ's death for the sins of men is Matthew's um, emphasis. And his resurrection, exaltation, ascension, promise of his return. Matthew likes to group things topically in groups of 3, 5, and 7. In the genealogy we're going to read a little bit later this morning, there are three groups of 14 generations. You know, obviously skipping a few, but grouping them nice and neatly. There are three illustrations of hypocrisy and piety um, uh, right uh, before the Lord's Prayer. There are three parables in chapter 13 on planting and growth, which is also the center of the, of the five, um, the five uh, discourses. And there are five examples from the law in chapter 5 in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Seven woes at the uh, last uh, great um, Sermon on the Mount of Olives, the sermon on, or the sermon before the Mount of Olives, rather, and some unique things. He has the fuller version of the Sermon on the Mount. You recognize that Luke kind of has one also. Sometimes we don't even call it the Sermon on the Mount in Luke, but the Sermon on the Plain. Um, he has the longer version of the Lord's Prayer. There is one reference to the Lord's Prayer, I think, in the first chapter of First Peter. One reference. Uh, when, you, when, you, when you call on, but it's a strange Greek word, when you invoke our Father, Peter says. Does that seem like it's the beginning of the Lord's Prayer? Seems like it to me. Otherwise, in the, in the scriptures, there are two copies of the Lord's Prayer, and the Apostolic Fathers, there's one copy in the Didache of the Lord's Prayer. By the way, the, are you aware? We're gonna, we'll talk about it in chapter 6. Did you know that the doxology of the Lord's Prayer for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, is not in the Bible? At least, not in the Gospels. Um, I pointed this out in Chronicles. It's actually a quote from Solomon. Um, and uh, However, it's already there in, the, in our copies of the Didache, this document written in about the year 150. They already have the doxology in that thing. So it was added quite, quite early, and it's not non-scriptural. It's just taken from a different part of scripture because I think people had the heebie-jeebies about ending the Lord's Prayer with deliver us from the evil one, amen. You know, they didn't want to end with a reference to the devil, so they stuck on a little doxology, a little praise thing. Um, Matthew has the birth of Jesus from the point of view of Joseph. He has the only account of the Magi and the flight to Egypt. Um, and I counted the other day, and I kept coming up with the same two numbers. I, I count 17 miracles and 17 parables. So I don't know if that was intentional on Matthew's part, but, and maybe I'm missing one, but uh, I counted 17 and 17. Uh, do I have anything else here? Oh, the, the theme that we're usually, uh, that, that I was given at the seminary or, or in college, I forget, for Matthew, is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah in whom all Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled. That's quite a mouthful. Um, 
What I see Matthew saying over and over and over again is simply this, all this took place. That's my theme for Matthew. All this took place. And usually he continues by saying all this took place to fulfill. But also that, that all of it happened, right? That all of it actually took place is something Matthew wants to make sure that we, that we get and that we understand. The audience of the gospel is, or, or seems to be Greek-speaking Jews. Matthew may have written his gospel in Jerusalem or in Judea, but he may also have left and gone north because there was a large group of Greek-speaking Jews that the Apostle Paul encounters up in Antioch, way up in Syria. Um, if you're familiar with places like Aleppo or the Orontes River, it's way north of Damascus. There are these places and one of them is called Syrian Antioch. Paul is there for quite a while in the early days of his ministry. And uh, Matthew may have gone there and may have written from there because there you would find Greek-speaking Jews who are Greek-speaking Jewish Christians also. Um, uh, and then we don't have um, even a very good tradition on the death of Matthew because the, the, uh, the early church kept confusing him with somebody else. Can you guess who? It's just strange. Matthias. Matthias is the disciple that they call to fill the space for Judas in the beginning of the book of Acts. And in early Christian accounts of what happened to Matthew, they, all of a sudden the name keeps switching back and forth, Matthew, Matthias, Matthew, Matthias, and who are they talking about? And so I, I can't even tell you, like I, I have an idea of what happened to Peter and how he died. But I don't have an idea, and, or Thomas and so, but not Matthew, don't know. So, um, and the structure, I didn't give you an outline, but I gave you the, the general structure of the book is simply um, the, these five sermons or discourses. The first one, the most famous one, chapters five to seven is the Sermon on the Mount. And the Lord's Prayer is the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and then uh, you have this, uh, this discourse or sermon in chapter 10 where he gives instruction to the 12 disciples, sending them out on their first preaching tour about you know, uh, what you should have in your bag and what you should do if they don't accept you and so forth. And then chapter 13, the Sermon on the Kingdom, it's uh, how many? I think seven parables about how God gathers the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. And then chapter 18 is the sermon on repentance. I quote chapter 18 with my confirmation students all the time with a poem. And you may have heard me say it uh, with the call to repentance. First you go, then to go. If that leaves you in the lurch, take it to the church. So that's Christ's call on, on how to call people to repentance is first you go yourself, show your brother his sin. If he repents, you've won him back. But if he doesn't repent, what do you do? To go. Take somebody along. What do I tell the catechism kids? You go along with the guy's mother and show him his sin. Just the three of you now. And now if he repents, then you've won him over. That's fine. But if he still doesn't repent, then what happens? Take it to the church. And this is, what, what do we call this then if he doesn't repent after the church has called him to repentance? Excommunication. 
Jesus has put him outside as he would a pagan or a tax collector. Um, so that's the call to repentance. Can you, uh, well, uh, two things about that. Um, people are a lot more mobile now than they used to. They run away. If, if, if people leave us, we can't excommunicate them. That's, and Luther made the same complaint, by the way. You can't excommunicate people because they just run to the next village. So Luther had the same problem. Um, we do, however, practice church discipline all the time. So the difference between discipline and excommunication is excommunication is step four. And if we're not practicing step four, it's not because we're not practicing steps one, two, and three. And we are. And sometimes these things do get as far as the church council. Um, but normally it's um, the, from, the, from the elders, and we'll talk about this in chapters 16 and 18, is that we have a series of letters that we send to people about our concern about their spiritual health. And when is the absolute most difficult time to exercise discipline, especially regarding church attendance? During COVID. Because how do you even know? You know, it's, it's, it's pretty tough to know. You have some people who are responding and, and telling us, you know, you can, you can look on, a, on or, or I can look at least online, uh, to something that I'm sent and see all the comments from the people who have seen the service. And I read the paragraph from uh, Professor Belke and the, 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 the nice greetings for everybody else because some people write a whole mini sermon of their own in response. It's wonderful. Um, but not everybody signs that. And I can't identify who clicks on the sermon um, and, and figure out who that is. We know the number of clicks but I don't know who they, I can't identify them. If we were to really go after this um, and have a massive budget and questionably invasive software, we could possibly do it. Just like before COVID, one of our staff members who's now retired, no longer part of our staff, um, but actually considered using facial recognition software and using the bride camera the one that's behind the pastor to look at the congregation and identify who's here and who's not here. Could certainly be done. It's a great camera. Would, would that be an invasion of privacy? That's what we thought of too. I would like it. I'd be gone. Yeah, and yet we had members who told us, why, don't, why aren't you doing that? Why do I have to sign this dumb book? So, you, you know, and then and we have members who constantly tell us, why do we have this dumb book? And, well, part of it is because our board of elders finds it difficult to, to track who's here and who's not here. Um, and it's not just about communion, but it's about attendance, period. And it's a difficult, it is a difficult, and with many people, a very delicate, touchy topic. And I recognize that. I understand that. So, anything that far? Let's go into chapter one. <clears throat> You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.